1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Book Networks podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Elena Tajima-Creek, author of Shadow Traces, Seeing Japanese-American and Anut Women in Photographic Archives. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Deidre. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for being on the show. Can you tell us something about... um, this project, and how you started the project, and what does it mean to you? Uh, thank you.
2: You know, I've I've been working in Asian-American visual culture for many, many years. It's my my teaching and my research area of scholarship. And uh, one of the things I've, I've always paid attention to are photographs. And, and in my field, there's been a real, I would say, Uh, under examination of a history of photography for Asian and Asian American women. Uh, And all, and all the archival research I do, I'm always stumbling upon caches of photographs and uh, some of them are vernacular. Some of them are historical, but I've been keeping track of, of these images for a long time. And, And I thought originally I was, I was working on a project that was interdisciplinary photography film a little bit of literature but I thought you know let me devote one project that looks exclusively at a history of of images and my focus was Japanese and Japanese American and also Japanese indigenous Ainu women Uh, so there's been I'm hoping that I could contribute some uh, original things to say about about what I found and I I think I traveled to over 12 different archives all over the United States uh, including Hawaii and at least one outing to Hokkaido, Japan, to uh, to visit an Ainu, a historical Ainu village and museum. So, but that's sort of how this project started. And in my book, I also tell the story of how, uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of California, Riverside, I spent a lot of time in the the open library stacks trying to track down a 1952 magazine issue of the Saturday Evening Post, because my mother always said that when she was a a young newlywed bride in Japan, that she was interviewed along with her classmates at the American Red Cross Bride Schools for a magazine photo by the Post. So I tracked down that magazine, read it with a mixture of horror and glee, uh, because it's quite fascinating and also very obnoxious, uh, coated with 1950s I guess I would call it some sexism, a little bit of misogyny, suspicion about the Japanese. uh, But it's also it's a fascinating archival piece. And there there was my mother in the photo essay alongside her classmates. So in many ways, I think about how that original original magazine photograph really kind of lit the fire uh, that would um, inspire the arc of my my scholarly career as someone who looks for. Uh, photographic images and popular culture and history.
1: One of the things you talked about in your book was the Asian American feminist point of view. Can you explain that to the audience? Yeah, thank you. I'd love to.
2: There's so much that Asian American feminists uh, from going back to the uh, early 1980s and 90s have taught us about ways of thinking about Asian, Asian American women and women of color. And there are things that for, for those of us who've who've read that literature by Mitsuya Yamada, Nellie Wong, uh, Merle Wu, these are contemporary writers of Audre Lorde and Cherie um, uh, Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. They taught us a lot and they gave us uh, kind of a lexicon and a critical vocabulary to thinking about what bell hooks calls the relationship of the margin to the center um those who stand at the center those who are excluded in the margins uh, the role and relationship between silences and voice um the concept of visibility and invisibility, the concepts even of model minority and what, what I've coined as monstrous minority. The 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 bookend um, um, the bookend accompaniment to the model minority, the the minority uh, figure who's less who's less uh, tractable. Uh, early Asian American feminists always. Uh, began their work, too, by placing the stories, the lives, the voices, the bodies of Asian women at the very center of their, of their critical inquiry. Uh, and they gave us those those tools and that blueprint as a way of thinking about how we can excavate these lost histories and how we can re- literally recenter their stories. So I take my inspiration from that whole wave of early uh, Asian-American feminist uh, women Writers, scholars, poets, artists.
1: Now, you, you talked about women as otherness, and I want you to explain this to us in the various areas, the Asian exclusion.
2: Well, the Asian exclusion, you know, is based on um, immigration acts in the late 19th century um, and uh, 1882 and 1924, where there was uh, there were legal um um limits regulations laws preventing severely curtailing and limiting Asian immigration to the United States. And that, that legislation came out of 19th century fears, uh, uh, hostility, uh, directed specifically towards uh, asians in america chinese and then also japanese in subsequent waves of asian immigrants uh, and that that fear of asians of um uh, as a threat to um, um, white labor uh, employment uh, a threat to uh, white women uh is literally embedded in both political discourse and then in these um, legal maneuvers to limit uh, to limit their, their arrival in America. Uh, Asians in America have always been cast as outsiders, as unassimilable aliens, and as, quote, other. And what I mean by other is uh, the opposite of other is to be fully human as a subject, to be a self. This is how I explain it to my students. To be other is to be dehumanized, to be subjugated, to be denigrated, uh, to be seen always as suspicious, less than, and and foreign. And that trope of an unassimil- unassimilable uh, alien other has a long standing history. Some say it begins in the 19th century. Some say it maybe goes back even, all the way to Aristotle and certainly even has a manifestation in 2022, where, you know, we're living in a moment right now of this, uh, during this pandemic of an anti-Asian backlash that we have not seen with this sort of
1: fury and violence in many decades. Women as otherness, in turn, wartime citizen. One of the great contradictions
2: in the way that we can think about Japanese American internment camp history and American citizens of Japanese descent uh, who were interned is that they were interned because they were they were deemed dangerous, un-American. And we're talking about you know, 80% of the internees were American born citizens. Uh, uh, you know, they were born in this country. Um, so the, one of the great hypocrisies and uh, paradoxes is how is it that we could we could in turn we could round up into concentration camps American citizens Um, one in my study of Japanese American women that I that I I look I do a close reading and deep dive into both the war relocation authority photographs of Japanese American women in the camps. And I also look at the ways in which some of the camp newspapers such as the Manzanar Free Press also depicted what I call the gendered lives of women in the camp. What I I found was a fascinating story about how young Japanese American internee women perform what I call citizenship, perform their loyalty, perform their patriotism even under conditions of, uh, of the camps in order to prove themselves first and foremost as American. And so you have performances of sort of hyper-patriotism um, and also with the women, uh, the young women, um, a real um, uh, attempt to sort of cling to dignity by something as mundane as looking good in the camp Hang, uh, for the young women, the focus on beauty tips in camp, how to, how to survive in the blistering hot suns in Owens Valley without destroying your hair and skin. How do you look good in the camps? How can you maintain again, a sense of just dignity and self young men uh, would eventually have the option of, of uh, joining the military. There was a draft and they, although young, Japanese American men were originally excluded. When they were finally able to join uh, to join the war effort, they signed up in droves as ways to prove their patriotism, to prove their citizenship, to prove that they were not uh, they were not other during this uh, national wartime period. They were uh, loyal citizen soldiers. Uh, women who were not joining the military, though there were some who served as wax, uh, they could also prove their their patriotism prove their citizenship by extreme being extremely productive uh, both in camp and those who are able to leave and to undertake jobs or pursue education and also by um, um, creating um, a place in camp where they could look good feel good as you know as young as young people uh, i've always argued that for young women uh, for young japanese american women uh, performing performing not just citizenship, but a sense of literal national belonging can be done through the body. Uh, in some would call it a sort of uh, maybe an assimilationist move to look as American as possible, to blend in, to prove that you are American first, Japanese second.
1: Immigrant brides, what were some of the pictures and information you can give us about that? Most people who study Asian American
2: immigration history are familiar with that group of women who arrived on these shores at the turn of the century, 1908 to 1920, 21, they're known as the Japanese picture brides. And they were that group of women who, because of the immigration limits for Japanese men in America, uh, who could not, who could not, um, um, who could not bring in unmarried Japanese women? There are limits on like who gets to immigrate from Japan to America, but there's a loophole. If you are married, you can bring over your wife. But the problem is, um, it's very expensive for a man to travel back to Japan, find a bride, and then bring her over. So there was uh, there was a tradition uh, of the picture bride, which is marriage by proxy. And so for uh, during the, that that short historical window, a number of Japanese women married by proxy in their Japanese home villages and were able then to have the paperwork cleared to uh, legally arrive as as uh, as married women in uh, Angel Island, San Francisco. Um, everyone's heard of picture brides, but what I found when I started doing my research is that um, nobody nobody had really explored the complexities around the photographic part of that history. Sometimes the women are called picture brides, sometimes photograph brides. And being a nosy scholar who was curious about everything, I was really—I cu- I wanted to learn a few things about the history of these photographs. So I, I think I visited maybe five or six different um, special collections on uh, Japanese immigrant women. And discovered in the National Archives at San Bruno, California, all of the immigration case files of everyone who who arrived. Um, their case files are extant and and open to open to. To, to reading and scrutiny. And I realized that a lot of the exchange photographs that were sent between the, the men in America and the women in Japan also are archived in those files. And every file tells a story about the women. Uh, every, every file contains a literal transcript of her interrogation when she arrived at Angel Island, um, background information, sometimes even the story of... How she and her husband were, uh, how how the matchmaking happened, um, and sometimes the archives also tell you something about uh, what happened to the brides after they arrived. Um, but I found just a, a rich repository of photographs, and uh, also did a deep dive into the the beautiful oral history collections that were conducted in nineteen seventies, eighties of picture brides in America and in Canada, uh, and in those oral histories, there are also slivers of information that you can find on the actual photographic history piece of those stories, you know, how the photographs, where where they were taken, how they circulated, and what they meant. My goal was to be able to tell you like at least three things about the history of photographs and Japanese picture brides. And I found that I can actually tell you about 14 things. And it was really helpful to that. The National Archives picture bride case files are literally stamped Japanese photograph bride. Made my job really easy uh, doing doing archival research. Um, But anyway, the that piece of history definitely could stand alone in a history of photography of Japanese women in America because it's just so rich. And there's a, a rich Japanese archive as well and I that I'm not able to access uh, because of, of the language. But the the English uh, language side of the archive is rich and fascinating. So I'm really happy
1: that I could make a contribution to that. Now, in your book, you talked about intersection. How could you see the intersectionality in the photographs?
2: That's such a great question. When I when I work with my my students, we talk a lot about how gender is one category of representation. We can look at images of women in a photograph, and that's one that's one intersection, that's one slice, that's one layer. And then to talk about the women in the photograph as Japanese or Japanese American or as Ainu indigenous women, is to add another another layer, another frame, one that's based on, on race and and or indigeneity. So now we're able to look at images of women, images of Japanese ness or indigenous uh, Ainu Ainu ness. Uh, and then on top of that, we can think about who uh, for the women in the photograph. You know, who is she? Where does she come from? Is this a working class migrant? Is this a woman who's who work as a laborer in California? Uh, where does class enter our, our intersectional framework? We're always looking simultaneously, not just at one of these, but we're looking simultaneously at all these interlocking categories of gender, of race, of class, um, uh, and it's. And I think that one of the things. That we can do as we go through a photo archive is train train our own way of seeing uh, and thinking simultaneously with every image. You know, how does this image register across all these places? Where do they come together? It's very it's it's hard, almost impossible, to try to untangle uh, an intersectional framework because they're so interlocking. Um, I found also that um, in a lot of the scholarship. Uh, where some of these photographs are, have been referenced or cited, that they're not looked at as an analytical or um, a compositional object of study, or they're simply looked at flatly as an image of, of a, a Japanese-American, but not Japanese-American woman, not Japanese-American woman uh, laborer or homemaker. Uh, the intersectional framework is not there in a lot of the, uh, the past scholarship Uh, particularly from historians um so it's it's a way of uh thinking i guess um across multi-dimensions at once some photographs lend themselves more powerfully than others but there's a certain way of, of of looking uh i've probably looked at um I think all 25,000 of the extant uh, internment camp photographs that exist, and when I, when I first started going through the images, I, I would always have my radar at full alert for the ways that race and class and gender and occasionally sexuality appears in the frame of, of the image, if that makes any sense.
1: Yes, it does. Now, in Chapter 1, you talked about the Living Cultural Exhibition. And the Japanese women in the St. Louis World Fair. Tell us about that. You know,
2: the St. Louis uh, World's Fair, uh, which celebrated the Louisiana Purchase in 1904, took place in St. Louis, Missouri. was was one of the great world's fairs of the 19th century. I think the one in Chicago was held in 1893. But the 1904 World's Fair, it is a fascinating. Um, Uh, piece of history, and it has left one of the most intriguing archives on record. It was a place where all of the turn of the century, technologies, arts, cultures, new innovations were celebrated and showcased from all over Europe and all over the world. And there was also a huge global indigenous um, component. Um, There were special uh, village exhibitions of indigenous people from Latin America. For the first time ever, nine indigenous Japanese Ainu came to America. This is the first time in history I think Ainu come to America. Uh, Not invited as part of the Japanese exhibition, by the way, but invited by the University of Chicago's um, uh, anthropologist, Frederick Starr, uh, who was asked by the fair organizers to bring quote, I think eight good specimens from Japan uh, for study and for exhibit at the fair. So there are these cultural villages at the fair, um, the Filipino reservation, uh, there were the uh, fair Japan, um, um, and of course, the indigenous Japanese Ainu who um, uh, lived in an Ainu house that was shipped from Japan and, and assembled on the fairgrounds. But it was like Um, a fascinating, a fascinating site where one could explore, maybe learn for the first time, witness for the first time, people from all over the world. Um, So there was that. On the other hand, it's one of the most uh, disturbing and colonialist of all sorts of gatherings. And there certainly was a hierarchy of the sense that Western exhibitions of peoples and cultures were at a, were ranked in a very high level, and indigenous peoples uh, were ranked at a uh, as as primitive and as a kind of um, low level bookend. Um, so, but the archive that's been left behind in photographs, in uh, so much literature, uh, so much testimony is is rich and fascinating. Um, And my own interest with the Ainu archive is that, you know, there are nine Ainu who came from Japan to America and their entire journey is well-documented by Professor Frederick Starr. And of the nine, five are women and girls. Uh, So the majority are women and girls. And yet in the the scant scholarship in anthropology that's been paid to the Ainu group, no one noticed that gender was a category. The Ainu group is always referred to as the Ainu group. and yet, when you look at the photographs from that archive, you realize that the women and the two girls dominate the archive. And there's a particular photograph that's on the cover of my book, Shadow Traces. It's a, a photograph of Ainu mother, Shutratek Tech, and her baby girl, Kiku. And they are uh, in the local press uh during the fair hailed as quote you know the most interesting pair at the fair mother and child and there's a madonna and child iconography to that 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 photograph of the way that mother's holding her her baby uh, but they are fascinating and uh, they disappear from a scholarly view because no one seems to notice that gender is a category of analysis and that uh, by doing a, a deeper dive and looking at the Ainu women and the Ainu girl children at the fair that they have something to tell us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
1: it was so interesting looking at the picture brides and how they were interviewed and inspected and the stories of hookworms. What, what was going on there? There's a larger disturbing history
2: of how the Asian body, uh, the Chinese body, the Japanese body is mysterious, unassimilable, unclean, pathological, disease-ridden, dangerous and that that rhetoric that discourse filters its way into the uh, immigration experience uh all all incoming uh immigrants are inspected and they go through a medical inspection um and so this is not unique to to the the japanese women uh and they're looking for traces of disease they're looking for traces of you know parasite infection Uh, all of which are treatable, by the way, and uh, the numbers of, of incoming uh, uh, incoming women who have some sort of parasitic infection, are, you know, are remarkably high. At least according to the immigration case files that I've read, and also treatable for a fee at uh, with the. Um, um, the the medical and health ser- services that were available, um, you know, at uh, at Angel Island at the time, uh, and once uh, once treated, once cleared, uh, women would have been uh, given the green light uh, to come uh, to um, to to come on 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 shore. Um, but I'm I am really fascinated with this larger history also of the. The need to look for and scrutinize uh, any element of danger. Um, there's also a, a fascination with inspectors and the interrogation, not only looking for signs of of, um, of compromised health, but looking for signs of morality. There was, you know, based on the Page Law, uh, which is uh, a little bit a little bit earlier, which uh, limits prevents the importation of uh, or the arrival of of um, uh, sex workers and prostitutes, there's a sense too that immigration officials are on the lookout for immoral Asian women, immoral Chinese, immoral Japanese women. And so I'm a little bit stunned by how uh, in, the, in the transcripts of the immigration interrogation that the signs around or the questions around behavior and
1: immorality also become part of that, um, that, that dialogue and conversation. Now, that brings up a really important area, because you talked about the dance troops, August 10, 1910. What did you find out in terms of scrutiny there?
2: That is one of my favorite stories from the archives, that story about the Cherry Blossom Dance Troupe. Because apparently it was a group of of women who traveled together as part of this, uh, this dance troupe, and they were being escorted to America by... Um, they're brought over by by someone. It's not clear to me how if he is their procurer, if he is their escort, but he's recruiting them to San Francisco, and all of the women in that troop are 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 um, put through pretty tough interrogations. Um, I came across letters in the immigration case files um, from anonymous uh, trans, uh, transport ship um, uh, passengers attesting to immoral behavior that they witnessed on, uh, during the, the trans Pacific voyage, you know, where men were seen, um, visiting the women's, um, the women's rooms. Um, uh, and there, there are several, there are several women from that group who were subject to pretty heavy interrogation. And it becomes really clear that, that officials are convinced that the cherry, the cherry blossom troop are prostitutes and that they're being, um, um, they're being led into the country under the guise as entertainers, but, the, but there's another story involved. But the 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 interrogation uh, files on every one of the women in that group are they're, are are massive, and the photographs that accompany also uh, those particular files are also substantial. Uh, there are a lot of women also from that group who are photographed again upon upon arrival, and there was a lot of follow up at what happened to the woman afterwards. Um, but I follow the story of one woman because she's given a marriage proposal, and she seems to cross over into the category of of a of a picture bride. Um, I didn't have time in this book to like to do a a a, a more. A sustained look at, at um, some of the the immigration stories that popped up in my research. Uh, that could, that should be its own story, its own article, or its own book. But that was that was one of my favorite. It was such a rich repository, and the voices of the women, you know, are embedded in those in those archival files. They're embedded through uh, translated transcripts, so you can read their voices as they talk back, as they speak up, as they assert themselves. Uh, Doing this type of archival research always makes me cognizant of how these women from the turn of the century have such strong, powerful voices and strong sense of self that comes through um, the paper files and the photographs that, that we have.
1: Now, I, I thought this was really, really informative. The poem, I Learned to sew." What is the message there? Oh, thank you for mentioning that. That poem is written by
2: my dear friend, uh, Mitsue Yamada, who is one of the legendary Asian American feminists who began writing in the early 1980s, and she's still writing today. Uh, Mitsu always says that poem I learned to sew was based on, I think, not her mother's story, but her mother-in-law's story um, as an immigrant uh, bride to Hawaii at the turn of the century. Uh, What I love about that poem is that there's a refrain, uh, but poem is written first person voice. And again, it's written first person voice of a Japanese picture bride um, who's been asked to tell her story for the first time. And one of the refrains is, I know nothing. Uh, You know, I am, you know, I'm just a simple. I'm, I'm just someone who uh, knows how to sew. Uh, but that humbleness, that sense of, you know, being so ordinary that there's nothing extraordinary in her life, that's also another theme that that Asian American feminists have taught us to look for, that some of the most beautiful, poignant, moving stories, maybe they don't come from the center, but they're all over the margins if you know how to, how to look for them, if you know how to listen to them. I think that um, that that poem is probably the greatest Picture Bride poem that's ever been ever been written. And when I've heard Mitsu read that, perform that, there's always not a dry eye in the house because it's just, it, it's so poignant and it's so moving in its
1: simplicity and in its dignity. You know, many times we don't look at age in pictures. I, tell us about the smiling elderly woman getting off the train at Lone Pine. What, what is the message there? Well, there's a whole set of
2: photographs taken by the, the War Relocation Authority photographers that document removal and relocation. And that one particular series just documents Japanese and Japanese-American internees who are arriving um, at the train station as they head to Manzanar uh, uh, internment camp in Owens Valley, California. Uh, when I have showed these photographs to my students, they always note with with a sense of disbelief why everyone looks so happy. You know the story. We know that the story of the internment camps is a tragic one, is an infuriating one, and is a heartbreaking one, and is one that demanded uh, uh, justice, and you know prompted um, the Civil Liberties Act, 1988. But um, those photographs showcase. Uh, Ordinary men and women, including the elderly, like that one, the one, the one elder woman, uh, disembarking into the arms of standing military police guards who tower over them and also very carefully escort them off the train onto the ground. And that one photograph of the smiling internee is the one that always stops my students in their tracks because one of the ironies of the internment camp archive is that. If you're looking for images, photographic evidence of the tragic, of the um, of um, the great emotional uh, hardship or physical hardship, you won't find much of that. Uh, you might find dust storms uh, at Tule Lake or Manzanar, but you'll also find a lot of images of internees who look... Um, Like they're adjusting really well, or they look really happy, Uh, you know. So there, there's that contradiction. And if you, it doesn't take much research to do a deeper dive into the, the many oral histories, the many interviews that we have, where every internee who has ever been asked to tell their story of of um, of uh, camp, uh, they will all tell you stories that will break your heart, every one of them. Um, But the photographs tell us a different story. I learned recently from uh, a Japanese um, uh, digital artist, Masaki Fujihata, who's got an amazing show at the Japanese-American National Museum right now called Be Here 1942. It's an augmented reality recreation of these famous 1942 photographs. Uh, and he restages it using digital technology so that you can see uh Uh, these photographs literally coming to life as augmented reality images. And one of the things that Masaki has said is to look at the smiles and to do, he actually does extreme close-up examination of of smiling faces of internees, of the children, the girls and and the women. And he's taught me recently to look for the contradiction in the smile. A smile, a mouth might be smiling, but if you do an extreme close-up look at some of these photographs, you'll see that the eyes tell you a different story. So I think with that particular image of uh, the elder woman getting off the train with a smile, again, the smile tells you one story. I'm sure she was very, uh, um, she's filled with gratitude for the help of of our military police helping her off the train. The smile tells you one story of gratitude, uh,
1: relief, but the eyes can tell you another story. Um, now you you talked about the camp-wide beauty contest in the camps what does this tell us and about determinations strength of the women
2: tells us a lot uh the at least in the early years of the camp um 1942 1943 For every festival at the camp, and I think this is true of of almost all the camps, um, there were informal beauty contests. You could be Miss Harvest Festival. You could uh, could run for a beauty queen during the 4th of July. Um, And these were all, these were local beauty contests in which young Nisei women um, would compete. Uh, And in my own research on Manzanar, I learned that I call the block mothers, the mothers of the of the Nisei girls who are participating, were really active as supporters uh, and cheerleaders of this process. Uh, once upon a time, I used to think there was something really sad about wearing the moniker and the crown of Queen of Manzanar. Um, there's a, a photograph that I that I that I look at closely in my my book on uh, on the subject. So once upon a time, I thought there was something uh, actually sad and and poignant and moving about the irony of wearing a a beauty crown uh, in a concentration camp in World War II. Uh, And in my research, as I dug deeper into uh, the women, the young women who actually participated in these contests and I read the many beauty columns that young Nisei women uh, wrote for the Manzanar Free Press, I completely changed. Uh, I, I realized I was misreading all those photographs of, of the beauty contests. Those beauty contests are about, uh, again, performing what we could call a sense of national belonging during wartime, during concentration camp uh, confinement. They were a way of maintaining, again, one sense of dignity, a sense of pride, and taking care of oneself looking feeling really beautiful that's a that's a powerful act of, of, um, of um, agency and um, an expression of selfhood uh, and I would never undermine that in any way by misreading beauty uh, beauty contests or beauty uh, in a camp as anything less than um, uh, positive and empowering um, I think of the the bravery and the sense of self it would take to Feel that good about oneself in those conditions, you know, uh, especially in 1942, which is the early, uh, during the early part of of um, of the cam- of camp life.
1: Now, I-, I thought this was very interesting. The newlyweds picture, Patrick and Lily. Tell us about that. You know,
2: I think that everyone should know about Patrick and Lily Okura because they are an amazing couple. Um, and uh, Clem Albers, who is one of the, the War Relocation Authority photographers, he loves Lily Okura. He has a whole series of photographs uh, that showcase her, uh, her setting up her home in the Santa Anita racetrack um, stalls or actually she, she and her husband live in the tack room. They don't, they're not in a horse stall. They got to upgrade. They're in, they're in an actual tack room. Um, Lily Okura was also a, she was Mae Wong's stand-in in, in Los Angeles. She was a, um, she was a a beauty. She was brilliant. Uh, She was uh, extremely active in the community. And she was also, I think, just seven months newlywed when she and her husband, Patrick, were sent to uh, Santa Anita uh, Assembly Center, which is the racetrack in Los Angeles. Um, uh, Later, they leave camp early. And they they go on to do some amazing uh, philanthropic work together. Um, I think he uh, they they are legendary activists in the Japanese American community. But what I love about Lily Okura's photos is that she, more than any other Nisei woman, embodies that sense of of self and pride and holding it together and in spite of what I can only imagine are deplorable conditions of being confined at a racetrack horse stall. Listen, those are the same photographs of horse stalls that Dorothea Lange took and which were impounded during the war. You know, Lily Okura, uh, uh, well, she dressed up every day in high heels and decorated, you know, that that tack room to make uh, to make a beautiful domesticated home for herself and her husband um but they're like they are two of what i would call the legends from from camp
1: now you included your mother's album that was so special tell us about that you know my um there is
2: there is no single archive anywhere where you where you can go to find photographs from my mother's generational cohort of Japanese war brides. There simply isn't one because uh, there are traces in a couple of popular magazines like Ebony, Jet, Saturday Evening Post. And other than that, uh, the Japanese war brides, they just disappear from view because they scatter across the country as as they join their husbands and they disappear into the heartland, into the South. Into the northwest, they just disappear. Uh, so, and I've I've always you know, I grew up in a household where my mother has always beautifully curated her personal photo albums. So she's always curated these vernacular images into you know gorgeous bound sets on archival quality paper. You know from 1952. Uh, so. Uh, I decided that I would take a look at my mother's my mother's photograph album as a kind of archive, as a family archive, as one that she curated with her own hand. And knowing her love of collect taking and collecting photographs over the years, um, you know her archive is vast. And I also know, as someone who grew up in the community. Of other war bride families, I've never met a war bride who did not have family uh, family f- albums that chronicled their their romance, their immigration stories, and then the raising of their their you know biracial children in America. So um, I use my mother's album though as a way to sort of give you a, a window into that world. Um, and my mother's album, the one that I that I discuss in in my my book really looks at, has three, has three waves. Uh, Occupied Japan when she met my father while he was stationed in Tokyo. Uh, Her immigration, her literal trans-Pacific voyage to Seattle. And then part three, raising an American family. Uh, Her, her album is literally divided into three. And so I think in my, in my book, I I look at those, those particular, um, um, Uh, those different, um, I guess, categories of representation, and documenting history. Uh, Work on My Mother's Album is the quirkiest chapter of this book. It's the one chapter where I bring in my own voice as a daughter of my subject into full play. And it was... it's the most experimental chapter because I write with such self-conscious and deliberate self-reflection in the way that I use my voice, my mother's voice. I write about my family, and I write about family photographs. And I was really nervous when I completed this book that that chapter was just too too oddball, too rogue. But I, it allowed me to complete my my book manuscript when I sent it out. And then one of the great surprises of this book is that chapter, uh, the one that I call the most experimental, that's the most personal in many ways, that's consistently the chapter that um, that garners the strongest reaction, the strongest personal and even emotional response from readers. Uh, that's the chapter that prompts people to come up to me and say, you made me think about my, my mother's photograph collection or my family's photograph collection in new ways. Uh, that's a chapter that inspires my, my students who don't do paper photographs, they only do digital, but it inspires them to think about how they are archiving, collecting their own photographs in digital form, uh, sometimes by the thousands um, and what they might do with them later. Uh, and that chapter also inspired a larger project that I just completed with the university of British Columbia, uh, on, um, for special, a special online digital series called behind, uh, behind the camera, uh, gender and power in photographs from Japan. Uh, I did a special, uh, slideshow for them on a crowdsourced Japanese war bride family album, uh, using the Facebook group for Japanese war brides and families. I was able to, to, uh, Solicit 14 contributing Japanese war bride families, and I've included all of their family photographs into this uh, this this digital slideshow lecture. So, uh, so I'm really I'm really excited that um, uh, that that particular chapter in my book has sort of inspired a new interest and a wave and thinking about how we can retrieve and how we can collect uh, missing photographs that are scattered all over the country uh, into some. Uh, permanent form that can be accessed by uh, by readers, by
1: viewers everywhere. Absolutely. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you're working on? Oh, thank you for asking,
2: Deirdre. Yes, uh, I'm really excited about uh, this new project I have, which I think is the the most ambitious project of my entire career. Uh, it's called. 36 Views of a Horse Nation Traveling with Warriors and Water Protectors from Little Bighorn to Wounded Knee. And it's a documentation. It's part ethnography, part cultural history, part historiography, and part autoethnography of my participation, support, and documentation of what I want to call the return of of, – the horse nation uh, in Lakota communities uh, across the Dakotas and Montana, where the horse has been used as a literal vehicle to remember some of the most tragic episodes of Lakota, uh, Dakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho history at places like Wounded Knee, um, Whitestone Hill, Mankato, Minnesota, and and the one and the one the one victory at Little Bighorn, Montana, uh, the only battle in which the the natives won. They beat the Seventh Cavalry. Uh, so my book looks at four different rides um, over a course of four years. Uh, each ride is ceremonial, and each ceremonial cycle is four years. So I'm documenting all four of these rides as an intersectional. Um, Way to think about all of the interconnected histories from Mankato, Minnesota, where the largest mass hanging occurred uh, the day after Christmas in 1862 by order of President Abraham Lincoln, to uh, the victory at Little Bighorn uh, in 1876, June 25th, uh, and then. The massacre that occurred at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, on December 29, 1890, um, where the Seventh Cavalry uh, 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 killed more than 350 Lakota men, women, and children. Uh, all of these rides that take place in the winter and the summer commemorate these historical events, and I've been I've been a privileged uh, traveler uh, uh, with. Uh, with with all with all these uh, all these horse people and bearing witness to their stories as they remember as they ride, the rides are all about healing and reconciliation, uh, and it's been my honor to sort of to to document and participate in that. So, 36 views of a horse nation will chronicle um, that uh, that phenomenon and this beautiful tradition uh, that has been going since uh, 1986, um, complete with
1: photographs. Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Thank you (laughs) so much for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you so much, Deirdre, for having me. It's been
2: my great pleasure.